From Schwartz Media, I'm Elizabeth Coolass. This is 7am. When Annabelle Crabb decided to find out what happens to men's work habits when they have children, she discovered a huge store of gendered norms and inequality. The lives of most new fathers change very little when they have a child. But there is policy that can change this, and in some places already has. Annabelle, you've written this quarterly essay. Can we start by talking about the chart? There's only one. There is one chart. I feel like I'm not normally a charty sort of person. I don't ever do a PowerPoint. But there was a chart that's compiled by a woman called Jennifer Baxter, who's a researcher for the Australian Institute for Family Studies. I wrote to her and said I was writing this essay. I was interested in pursuing the topic of men, you know, looking at men just and saying, well, how do they respond when their lives change. And she said, oh, I've got this paper that I'm working on and it had this great graph in it that just leapt off the page. Annabelle Crabb is a journalist at the ABC. She's also the author of the quarterly essay, Men at Work. And I wrote back saying, that graph! And she said, yeah, look, you know, (laughs) whenever I show it, you know, at conferences or talks, people just go... (gasps) So what she's done is she's compiled an average pattern across Australia of what happens to women when they have children and what happens to men. So she's got three elements. She looks at what happens to a person's paid working hours, what happens to their hours they put into childcare and hours they put into unpaid domestic work. And for women, obviously childcare just goes as soon as the baby's born because obviously, yeah. And then the paid work of the woman goes straight down. And then it kind of straggles back up, but it never really gets to the same point again. This is an average, remember, of parents across Australia. And the domestic work goes zip up and then it stays up. So you look at the graph and it's so evocative and it looks like, you know, in in ER or whatever, when someone's got a very, very dangerous... State of elevation. It's going, <laughs> there's spikes and troughs everywhere. It looks like the heartbeat of a highly anxious and stressed out person. But when you pop across and look at what happens with Australian men, it's so different that it's just laugh out loud noticeable. So childcare for an Australian man goes up when he becomes a father and then it kind of like coasts back down again. His domestic work really doesn't change at all. It stays static at about 15 hours, encompassing things like driving kids around, you know, yard work, dishes, food preparation, all of that stuff. And the paid work stays exactly the same. So really, the men's graph just looks like a sort of like a little cruiser just cruising along. So according to this graph, at least, a woman's life changes drastically after she has a child, and for a man, not so much. Why is it so different for men and women? If you have a look at the research into what it is that men feel is preventing them from taking parental leave, it is partly economical. They think, well, I earn more, so it doesn't make any sense for me to give up my income. So, like, the gender pay gap really kind of plays into this quite a bit. But also there's a cultural, like a really, really strong cultural signal to men that really persists all the way from conception and through birth and through toddlerhood. 
you know, we have mothers' groups that are kind of labelled in a way that makes it clear that it's not really for fathers. We have workplace cultures that are accustomed to expecting women to work differently. It is much more normal for a woman to take a big chunk of time off, typically a year. And what happens over that year is that women, they're out of the workforce, they take on responsibility for a whole bunch of domestic tasks And that sets up this sort of pattern that exacerbates the gender pay gap, that feeds into a lot of the patterns that we see among women at work today. You also looked at the effect that having a child has on a person's earning potential, whether they're a man or a woman. What happens there? Oh, look, there is a really longstanding and very robust principle called the fatherhood premium and the motherhood penalty. And it is that a man who has children is considered a more reliable, more promotable, more stable employee. And a a woman employee who has children has the opposite experience. And a few years back, NatSem did some amazing number crunching on what the economic consequences of that were for men and women. And they modelled a 25-year-old man starting out on an average career of 40 years duration And they computed that he could expect to earn $2 million over the course of that 40-year career. But if he had children, that would go up to $2.5 million. Whereas they calculated that a woman would, also 25 years old, same average career, same duration, could expect to earn $1.9 million over that course of that career. But if she had children, that would go down to 1.3. So there you see the most clear demonstration of the same biological event, you know, becoming a parent, having just a wildly different effect on the careers of men and women. It seems that the role of what, or the perceived idea of what an employer will think if a male does apply to take time out, drives a lot of what is and isn't asked for from a new father. Yeah. So there's a really great piece of research that the Diversity of Council of Australia did a couple of years back, which was looking at millennial fathers. And this is really interesting because I think there is a bit of a generational change going on. And for younger fathers who want to be more involved than their own fathers were, this puts them in an awkward situation because sometimes they're dealing with legacy employers that are expecting that men will continue to be these sort of ideal employees that are available around the clock before, during and after they have children. And the research from the DCA is really interesting. It shows, for instance, 79% of millennial fathers would like to work a compressed work week but only 25% of these guys actually work like that. So there's a real disparity between the aspiration and the reality. The next question is, okay, so why is that? Is it because these guys are fibbing? They're like, yes, I would love to come home to my screaming child at 4pm or whatever, but unfortunately I can't. (laughs) Or do they have a, a reasonable apprehension that this ambition of theirs will be inconsistent with promotability, reliability, likability in the workforce. And I think that it is correct for at least some men to be cautious about how that aspiration will be greeted by their employers. So where are we at now? Who takes leave? Who doesn't? I mean, we've had a federal paid parental leave scheme for about eight years now, and it's been used since it was introduced by about 1.2 million women. And in that time, it's also been used by about 6,500 men, less than one half of 1% 
of the number of women is the number of men who have used that scheme. We'll be right back. The City of London in Andrew O'Hagan's latest novel is crumbling. But don't mistake this for pessimism. Instead, the author insists it's a necessary process for a better future. Change doesn't just happen because it's time for a change. Change has to be forced. We live in the end not in countries that are settled places. They're just imagined communities. I'm Michael Williams, and on this week's Read This, I sit down with Andrew O'Hagan to discuss his latest, Caledonian Road. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. With award-winning news coverage and reviews, the Saturday paper is essential reading for everybody. For a limited time, subscribe to a year of our quality, independent journalism, and you'll receive the Saturday paper's stainless steel coffee cup, made in collaboration with Fresco, for free. Subscribe from just $2.10 a week. Simply visit thesaturdaypaper.com.au forward slash offer. The Saturday Paper. No hot takes. Annabelle, you've written this quarterly essay about gender and work and where children might fit in with that. What do we know about men who've pushed back against these norms and said, actually, I do want to spend more time caring for my kids, and they've successfully altered their work arrangements to make that happen? So in 2014, the Equal Opportunity Commission did this big report on pregnancy and return to work, which also included a big section on the experience of men who take parental leave. And what they discovered from that research was that around about a quarter of the men they talked to reported that they had had some level of harassment or blowback from taking leave, which went all the way from sort of remarks to being dismissed, you know. And the interesting thing is that the way all this is couched these days, because, I mean, the way the legislation was phrased is that it talks about primary carers. It doesn't say maternity leave. It's primary carers leave. But also there is this sort of weird thing where it's evolved into a primary carer means birth mother, unless demonstrated otherwise. I mean, that's sort of the presumption. It sounds gender neutral, but in practice, if you are a man and you apply, they're like, whoa, 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 whoa down there. Like, that's not for you. And then there's a really interesting Canadian study that is a couple of years old now, which looks at the experience of caregiving men, non-caregiving men, caregiving women and non-caregiving women who are parents in the workplace. And actually what that study showed was that it's really the differentiation from the norm more than the gender that is significant in the question of whether you're getting blowback at work. Because what they found out was that women who took parental leave and then worked part-time or combined their work with looking after their kids, they were accepted because that was a normal thing to do. Men who did that got criticised. But at the same time, women who worked like traditional men, i.e. worked full-time and didn't work flexibly to accommodate their children, they also got a bit of blowback as well. So, like, the most criticised people were the people who swam against the tide of expectations. All of that is pointing to this sense that we we have these sort of deep-seated ideas about who will do what, and then when someone violates that, then that's uncomfortable or unusual or worthy of comment. What about government policy? and hope for change potentially and flexibility in how different couples may figure out how to, you know, navigate this for themselves. Look, governments can, I think, devise solutions that work intelligently with what they know to be the tendencies and expectations that are existent 
to date. And there's some great examples, and of course they're in Scandinavia because of course, um, <laughs> where governments have changed the way that they structure parental leave in a way that takes account of this persistent feeling among men that they have an obligation somehow, you know, to provide, to be the breadwinner and so on. And so some of the most intelligent tweaks to government policy that I've seen have included things like establishing what they call a daddy quota, which is they say, okay, this family, if it's a two-parent family, is entitled to X amount of parental leave this chunk of it is only available if it's the dad who takes it. So if you don't take it up, then it's lost to the family. Use it or lose it. Yeah, that way it kind of works with this paternal urge to provide, not against it. And here's where it becomes really relevant and interesting for Australia. There is a whole heap of research that shows that the more involvement a father has very early in their baby's life, the more connected they will be to that child throughout life and the more equal the division of domestic labour will be in that household and ongoing basis. So you can actually pull levers Mm. as a government. It's just about lateral thinking, I think. And at the moment, our parental leave scheme really It reflects our expectations about who will do what. So, for instance, you know, the main scheme has to be applied for by the birth mother and there's a secondary scheme called the dad and partner pay scheme, which is two weeks at the minimum wage, which makes it lovely and clear who's supposed to not be the primary caregiver. You make the point in this essay that Scott Morrison and Josh Frydenberg are the first prime minister and treasurer to both have young children since the mid-'70s. Do you think that we'll see changes on the basis of their experience? Oh, look, I think I always used to get frustrated when I'd see female senior executives with children. The first thing they'd be asked is, you know, how do you do it all? And, you know, if you talk to Tanya Plibersek or Kelly O'Dwyer or Nicola Roxon or any of these, like, really senior women that have juggled cabinet roles with the care of young children, you know, they get asked all the time and... I used to get a bit annoyed because I think, well, ask her about her job. But actually, the older I get, the more I think, actually, that is a sensible question. You know, asking how other people manage their lives is a really understandable curiosity. Now I just get annoyed when men don't get asked it. One, because I think you're just assuming that they've got a spouse that takes care of everything, which is not always the case. And two, you normalise it. You normalise this idea that actually having changes in your family responsibilities doesn't make any kind of difference to the way that you work. And that's an unfair assumption because it's unfair to men who do work differently. And it's also unfair to women who don't statistically have the opportunity to rely on a non-working spouse the same way that men do. So you're kind of making a whole half of life invisible. We haven't thought enough about men and what governs their behaviour. It's not an attack on men at all. Like, I mean, I think you've got to understand why people behave the way they do and often men are responding really rationally to all of the stimuli that they see around them. But that can be changed. It really can be. Annabelle, thank you so much. It's a pleasure. Join Richard Tognetti and the ACO for a bold and intrepid 2022. Featuring a live national concert season, their acclaimed on-demand film series ACO Studio Casts, and exciting programs from their new home in Sydney's Walsh Bay. Subscriptions now on sale at aco.com.au.
This year, the Saturday paper celebrates 10 years as Australia's leading independent newspaper. In that time, it's built a peerless reputation for quality journalism, for telling stories that are ignored elsewhere. It's the essential account of the week in politics, culture and news. When you read the Saturday paper, you don't need to read anything else. Subscribe today from just $2.10 per week. Visit thesaturdaypaper.com.au slash subscribe. The Saturday Paper. The whole story. Elsewhere in the news, the Morrison government yesterday announced that welfare recipients chosen to participate in its drug test trial program will have to consent to testing or have their payments cancelled. The bill introduced on Wednesday outlined that those who failed the drug test would not have their payments cut or cancelled, but would be placed into an income management program that would see 80% of their payment delivered through a cashless debit card. The trial will include 5,000 welfare recipients across three locations in New South Wales, Queensland and WA. The government also announced $10 million in rehabilitation funding across those three trial locations, but experts in substance abuse met at Parliament House on Wednesday to call for an additional $1.2 billion a year to meet the community's need for increased services. And in Melbourne, the Russell Street bomber Craig Minogue has made an unsuccessful bid to be released from prison after the High Court voted to uphold legislation that prevents parole periods from applying to those who've murdered police officers. Minogue received a life sentence in 1988 with a non-parole period of 28 years after he murdered a police officer and injured 22 people using a car bomb. The judges said, quote, The fixing of a non-parole period said nothing about whether the plaintiff would be released on parole at the end of that. This is 7am. I'm Elizabeth Coolass. See you Friday.